Welcome to part two of our American Revolutionary War saga, Drums Along the Mohawk, where we will be sharing with you the stories of the men and women, famous, infamous, and often unnamed, who fought for survival and freedom from British rule in the bloody American frontier during the American Revolution. There were outright massacres committed by both sides, hundreds of individual skirmishes, and uncountable acts of both cruelty and courage that took place outside the cities and better-known battlefields of the Revolutionary War in America. The worst of the massacres were ordered by the British and carried out by British soldiers in the company of their Loyalist Ranger Battalions, themselves colonists, and their bloody Indian allies under the command of Colonel Butler and Thayendega, also known as Joseph Brandt. The goal of the British and Tories and their Indian allies, to kill Americans who supported the Patriot cause and destroy their homes and families and farms, to terrorize the communities they lived and farmed in, to use the Indians and the Tories to commit the worst of the atrocities while they looked the other way, and to pay a good price for scalps. This episode is not intended for the faint of heart or for young adults unaccustomed to stories of war. It contains eyewitness accounts of the brutality committed by England and its allies during the American Revolution. The reason explicit scenes are described here as they actually happened is to illustrate the meaning of the word savage as it's applied to Indians and British Tories during the Revolution. Whoever created the term noble savage had no idea what they were talking about. With regard to American history, the events that took place during the American Revolution shaped the destiny of the country and of those who survived. Sometimes you'll find lonely plaques to commemorate these people, places, and actions. Many times not. With each year that passes, another page in history slowly dims from our view until it's gone from our sight. There's no need anymore to commemorate the actions that took place 210 years ago at the site of what used to be a fort or a bloody massacre. Little valleys and towns like Herkimer, Oriskany, Cherry Valley, Tunkhannock, Wyalusing, Wyoming, and Tioga are forgotten names these days. In a country as divided now as it was then, there seems there's no need to teach or least of all celebrate the actions of forgotten heroes who died for a long-lost sense of patriotism. Flag wavers and populists are today seen as relics of a long-forgotten and best-forgotten past. But in 1878, in the Wyalusing region of northeast Pennsylvania, the people of that farming community, which consisted of rolling hills and lush valleys, wanted to honor and commemorate the sacrifices of their ancestors who had come to settle the land and ended up pouring out their life's blood into the soil only 100 years before. So they placed a monument there that day, the 3rd of July, 1878, and a crowd of people gathered to listen to what they all knew to be a eulogy remembering what the historians call the Battle of, or more appropriately, the one-sided Massacre of Wyoming. Wyoming being the name of the valley and little town there in Pennsylvania. This story should provide an excellent example to the beginning student of history who has only read of or heard of the massacres of innocent Indians, the one side of the story. To understand that the story of the Indian Wars in America had two sides, and once you start taking a tally, starting in 1622, there were far more massacres of innocents, especially massacres involving butchery, committed by Indians than by forces opposing them. During the Revolution, Tories and British troops under commanders like Butler and Tarleton 
and Simcoe, with their Indian allies, far outpaced colonial militias with respect to both brutality and the number of innocents killed. Replacing you back in 1878 as a member of that crowd which is listening to this eulogy. You were born in this part of Pennsylvania, in Tioga, when the Civil War was raging. A war which called nearly every able-bodied man under 35 to different states to fight. All your family had ever known was farming, fighting, and hardship. Your grandfather had barely survived the massacre at Wyoming. Stories of those hard days were the legacy of your family and your neighbors' families. Those were hard times. The Seven Years' War, the Indian kidnappings, smallpox, the War for Independence. Families and communities split between Whig and Tory. The War of 1812, the Civil War, always war. So many good people died young. The words of the speaker this day recall those stories and take you back to another time, a time before trains, gas engines, the telegraph, and recall a time in the last century when Indians, mountain lions, and wolves threatened every moment of existence. Portions of that eulogy from Steuben Jenkins, which provide a rich tapestry of unvarnished history, are given here as follows. There is no event of equal magnitude that occupies so large and conspicuous a place, none that has made the scene of its enactment so celebrated in history and song, as has that of the Battle of Wyoming, with its attendant massacre and conflagration, none that has so largely called forth the execrations of mankind against the one side, and then feelings of compassion and sympathy for the other. We are met this day to recount the scenes enacted here on this ground just 100 years ago, and to commemorate the valor and patriotism of that little band of heroes who went forth to stay the march of the ruthless invaders of their soil and save their families, their homes, their flocks, and their harvests from havoc and destruction. They were not soldiers, trained and inured to martial services, well-armed and equipped for the fray, they had no great commander with an army of veterans going forth conquering and to conquer, to sate his mad ambition or wreak his vengeance upon an innocent, unoffending people. There was no one among them who possessed an absolute command. They were principally old men and boys, unfit for the active and arduous duties of the field, who, from inefficiency, had remained at home while the young men better fitted for those active and arduous duties were serving in the distant ranks of our country's defenders. It was no war of ambition, of plunder, or of revenge on their part. It was to save themselves and their families from butchery, their homes from the torch of the incendiary, their flocks and herds from being slaughtered or driven off, their harvests from being destroyed, and their liberty from being overthrown. We cannot talk or judge of them as soldiers, for soldiers they were not. We cannot talk of them as an army, for an army they were not. They were simply a hasty gathering of a rural settlement for defense against invaders. As such, I shall speak of them today. As such, we must judge their acts. To more fully understand the position of affairs on that terrible day and night of carnage, devastation, and blood, Go back with me in the history of the valley for 100 years, for it is of that period of its history 
we are met here today to talk and reflect. We find quite a different state of affairs existing here then from that which surrounds us here today. Instead of cities and towns, the abodes of wealth, of luxury and ease, we see only a little hamlet or two, with log houses scattered here and there, occupied by busy toilers, winning from the willing earth in the sweat of their brows, the means of subsistence. Instead of cleared fields stretching from mountaintop to mountaintop, dotted with fine farmhouses, palatial in size and in grandeur of adornment, surrounded with large fields, finely fenced and subdued to the wish of the cultivator, we find an almost forest waste, with here and there only a cleared spot, encumbered with stumps and brush, mostly bordering on the river. Instead of the screech of the locomotive, as it wheels its course through the valley at more than racehorse speed, communicating and exchanging the interests and business of the whole country, and bearing a share of the commerce of the world to and fro through it, we hear the howls of voracious wolves, the screech of the stealthy panther, and the frightful yell of the more stealthy and bloodthirsty Indian savage, bearing terror, desolation, and death to the unguarded settler. Their communication with the outer world, instead of being borne upon the lightning's rapid wing, instantaneously throughout the whole continent, were borne on horseback or on foot through an unbroken forest, without roads or bridges, and it was a five or six days' journey out, and as many to return again, and then only the nearest and feeblest settlements were reached. In passing from house to house through the settlement, instead of hearing the organ or the piano swelling forth their rich strains of harmony, or the hum and clatter of machinery gathering the abundant harvest and preparing it for the market, we hear the hum of the spinning wheel, the bang of the loom, the whack of the threshing flail, the stroke of the felling axe, the grinding of grain with the pestle and mortar. The people were few and scattered, covering a hundred miles up and down the Susquehanna, limited in means and resources, and yet, with brave and true hearts, they battled manfully against the toils, the sufferings, the privations, and dangers that pressed them on every side. Such was the condition of the settlement here one hundred years ago. And who were these people thus isolated from the rest of the civilized world, the pioneers of a new colony, struggling with poverty and want, battling with foes without and foes within, and yet maintaining their ground amidst all their dangers, afflictions, and sufferings? They were principally born and raised in the land of steady habits, were the sons and daughters of the honest yeomanry of Connecticut and Rhode Island, not the refuse of towns, not gold hunters or greedy speculators or reckless adventurers, but the young, the energetic, and enterprising part of a rural population whose parents were ministers, deacons, and members of evangelical churches. Those from Rhode Island were mostly Quakers or friends. They came to fell the forest, cultivate the land, and establish a society on the banks of the beautiful Susquehanna, where, under a more genial sun and on a more fertile soil, they might enjoy all the privileges of their ancestors and transmit to their posterity homes possessing all the characteristic excellencies of those in New England. They were joined in this enterprise by a company of settlers from Dauphin and Lebanon counties of Presbyterian stock 
who settled the town of Hanover. These were chiefly Scotch-Irish and German. They brought the gospel and the gospel minister with them and provided liberally for their support. They established schools and made ample provisions for education throughout the settlement, laying broad and deep the foundations for a religious, intellectual, and moral community. Such were the sources whence came the people whose story we are telling, such the people themselves. The labors, the sufferings, the dangers, and deaths they endured in preparing the ground and sowing the seeds of future prosperity and greatness for their descendants accomplished their work, and have given, not alone to their descendants, but to hundreds of thousands from all parts of the civilized world, abundant cause for gratitude and joy. The soil they hallowed with their blood yields to us a bountiful supply of all that can gladden the heart and make life happy. With these introductory remarks, I will at once enter upon the history of the events of the day we have met to commemorate, and yet, to treat of them properly, it becomes necessary to detail, to some extent, the preceding history of the times which wrought out these events and their sad termination. The country was engaged in a great and earnest struggle for freedom from the exactions and tyranny of the British government. It was the common cause of all the colonies, and nowhere was that cause more earnestly espoused and more ardently sustained than here at Wyoming. The general campaign of 1777 opened amidst gloom and despondency for the American cause. General Burgoyne, with a large and powerful army, was descending from the north, along Lake Champlain and the Hudson, and Howe was moving up that river to join him, hoping thereby to sever the eastern colonies from the middle and southern. The Indians had, until this time, remained in a great measure quiescent, but they were seduced from their partial neutrality, and on the 20th of June, at Bouquet River, taken into full service of the British by General Burgoyne, and a market was opened by him for human scalps at ten dollars for each, that the Indians might gather in their work of desolation and death. The Tories also were roused up to join with the British and Indians in their bloody work, and it now became evident that besides the regular warfare that might be expected from civilized nations, the frontiers would be everywhere overrun by the Indians' and their more savage allies, the Tories, and would become one long line of conflagration, devastation, and death. The enemy, numbering about 200 British provincials and about 200 Tories from Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey, under the command of Major John Butler and Captain Caldwell of Sir John Johnson's Royal Greens, and about 500 Indians, commanded by Kaing Warto, a Seneca chief, and Captain Joseph Brandt, a Mohawk, descended the Susquehanna River in boats and landed near the mouth of Bowman's Creek, where they remained some time, waiting for the West Branch party to join them. This party consisted, as before stated, of about 200 Indians under the command of Gusinjirachtan, a Seneca chief. After the junction of all the forces, Numbering together about 1,100, they moved forward to the invasion of Wyoming. They left the largest of their boats and with the lighter ones passed on down to the three islands, five or six miles below, laying them up in Keeler's Eddy 
about 15 miles from this valley. Let's look at the position of affairs as they existed on the 3rd of July, 1778, 100 years ago. The upper part of the valley on the west side of the river was in the hands of the enemy, numbering 1,100 men, well-armed and equipped, thirsting for conquest and blood. The line at this point was counted off into odds and evens from right to left. The advance was made by the evens marching 10 steps and halting, and so on, alternately, each division or section marching 10 steps, halting, firing, and loading, while the other was going through the same exercise, until more than half the distance to what finally became the field of battle had been gone over. As they advanced in this manner, a number of Indians, here and there, over the field, would arise, deliver their fire, and flee before them. The fire would be returned, and our people would continue to advance. Soon a squad of British arose, delivered their fire, and fell back. Our commander cries out, See, the British retreat. Stand firm, and the day is ours. They continued to advance, and soon another squad of British arose, delivered their fire, and fell back. Again the cry, The British retreat. The day is ours. Our men had now arrived at a point just opposite Wintermoot Fort on their right, and on the edge, in front of the only cleared space on the plain, which was an open field of three or four acres. They continued their advance slowly and cautiously, when they soon found the British in full force in front, standing up to the work, though apparently yielding ground. The firing now became general along the lines on both sides. Our people felt they were gaining ground and driving the enemy before them. Too much attention had been devoted to the movements of the British in front to properly observe and understand the movements and dangers of the other portions of the field. The British lay behind a log fence which ran along the upper side of this cleared field down to the foot of the hill at a marshy spot and were largely concealed and protected by it. The Indians, lying behind the marsh on the other side of the field, which ran diagonally across the front of our line, and concealed behind its dense shrubbery, had not manifested their force on the field, and their location was not really known. When the settlers had advanced fully into this cleared field, and were, as they supposed, driving the enemy before them, the Indians broke from their cover and fell upon their left, yelling like demons, pouring in their fire, and pressing to close quarters with the spear and the tomahawk. Their numbers were sufficient not only to outflank the left, but to turn it and gain the rear. Colonel Dennison, on discovering this movement, at once gave orders for the left to fall back and form an oblique line to the position of the right, and thus bring the left into a position to face the enemy. But the order was not fully understood, or it was imperfectly communicated, and hence the movement was confused. In the midst of the noise and confusion, the word oblique was understood by some to be retreat. And the line was not formed, but the left began moving in on the right in a broken, confused mass. The officers, meantime, made every possible effort to have their orders understood and to restore order and bring the men to face the enemy and stand their ground, but in vain. Colonel Durant's fell, severely wounded, while riding along the line, gallantly laboring in this vain attempt. The mistake was a fatal one, 
and could not be called back. The Indians, meantime, rushed in upon them, yelling, brandishing their spears and tomahawks, and the British and Tories pressed down upon them in front, pouring in a terrible fire. Broken, borne down by overwhelming numbers, and pressed by an irresistible force, the left gave way and fell back on the right. The movement was rapid and confused and brought confusion on the right. From confusion to disorder, from disorder to broken lines, and thence to flight were but steps in regular gradation. The flight became a slaughter, the slaughter a massacre. Such was the battle. It was impossible that the result of the battle should have been different. The enemy were nearly three to one and had the advantage of position. Our men fought bravely, but it was of no avail. Every captain fell at his position in the line, and there the men lay like sheaves of wheat after the harvesters. Indulge me while I recount to you some of the incidents of that flight, that slaughter, that massacre. The flight from the battlefield, although confused and made under overwhelming pressure by a furious onslaught of the enemy, yet was not entirely devoid of system. The men generally gathered in squads and commenced moving off, frequently turning back like the hunted lion and holding in check their pursuers by their threatening attitude and the mutual support they gave each other. On the left, a squad of a dozen or more, unconscious of the fatal state of affairs by which they were surrounded, one man only, John Caldwell, having fallen in lines, stood their ground and loaded and fired, not only after all their friends had fled and were gone, but until the enemy had passed by them in pursuit. They commenced moving off the field together, but one by one broke off, seeking safety in separate flight by hiding in the bushes and fleeing out of line of pursuit. Part of them were taken prisoners, and with others, to the number of ten, were taken about a half a mile above the battlefield, about midway between Wintermoot and Jenkins Fort, on the top of the hill, on the line between Exeter and West Pittston, near the river, where they were put to death with savage torture. Captain Blanchard and the others at Pittston, seeing fires burning below on the opposite side of the river, went down to see what was going on. They beheld a scene of torture of the most horrible and revolting character. Several naked men were being driven round a stake in the midst of flames. Their groans and shrieks were most piteous, while the shrieks and yells of the savages, who danced around, urging the victims on with spears, were too horrible to be endured. The men watching were powerless to prevent or avenge those atrocities, and withdrew, heartsick, from the sight of the terrible orgies. Among the prisoners was Joseph Elliot, who, seeing the horrible fate that awaited him if he remained, sprang and broke through the death circle of the savages, and fled to the river and plunged in. When out about twenty rods, a ball from his pursuers struck him in the shoulder, wounding him slightly, but he continued on, crossed the river, and proceeded safely to Wilkesbury Fort. A body of fugitives surrounded Colonel Butler, and all moved off together. Another body surrounded Colonel Dennison, and kept together until they reached Forty Fort. On their way, with the Indians in hot pursuit, Rufus Bennett, who held Colonel Dennison's horse by the tail, and was the hindmost of the party, remembered that Richard Inman had lain down at the hill 
at their second halting place, and not gone on with the others. As they came to where Inman lay, Bennett turned his head in that direction, and saw Inman sitting up, rubbing his eyes. "'Is your gun loaded, Inman?' "'Yes, it is.' "'Then shoot this Indian.' Inman raised his rifle, and the foremost Indian, as he passed the fence, was shot through the heart. He sprang up, uttering a fearful yell, and fell prostrate. The other pursuing Indians turned and fled back, leaving the party unmolested. Colonel Butler repaired to the Wilkesbury or Wyoming Fort. Colonel Dennison took up his quarters at Forty Fort. They at once took all necessary precautions to hold their positions and keep safely their inmates for the night until other arrangements could be made for their security. The men fled generally back to the fort on the route they had marched out, or to the river pursued closely by the British, Indians, and Tories, and it would be difficult to tell which took most delight in shooting and cutting down the fugitives. No quarter was granted to anyone. All were discriminately slaughtered, wherever found. Men seemed transformed into demons, was a dreadful hour. Lieutenant Elijah Shoemaker, who had fled into the river and was quite out of harm's way, was hailed by Windecker, a Tory, who had worked for him and received many favors at his hands, and requested to come back and put himself under Windecker's protection. Shoemaker stopped, hesitating what course to pursue. Come out, come out, says Windecker. You know I will protect you. Shoemaker, trusting to the assurance, came back, and as he extended his hand to take Windeckers to help him up the bank, Windecker struck his tomahawk into the head of Shoemaker, who fell back into the river and floated away. Many other fugitives were in like manner lured to shore by promises of quarter or safety, and in like manner slain, too many to be recounted on this occasion. The account of the horrible orgies of what has since been known as Queen Esther's Bloody Rock must close this part of this most bloody event. On the evening of the battle, 16 of the prisoners taken on the field of battle and in the flight, under promise of quarter, were collected together by their savage captors around a rock near the brow of the hill at the southeast of the village of Wyoming and a little more than a mile from the field of action. The rock at that time was about two feet high on its eastern front with the surface four or five feet square running back to a level with the ground, beneath it at its western extremity. The prisoners were arranged in a ring around this rock and were surrounded with a body of about 200 savages under the leadership and inspiration of Queen Esther, a fury in the form of an Indian woman who assumed the office of executioner. The victims, one at a time, were taken from the devoted circle and led to the east front of the rock, where they were made to sit down. They were then taken by the hair and their heads pulled back on the rock, when the bloody Queen Esther, with death maul, would dash out their brains. The savages, as each victim was in this manner immolated, would dance around in a ring, holding each other's hands, shouting and hollering, closing with the death whoop. In this manner, 14 of the party had been put to death. The fury of the savage queen increased with the work of blood. Seeing there was no other way or hope of deliverance, Lebens Hammond, one of the prisoners, in a fit of desperation, with a sudden spring, broke through the circle of Indians 
and fled toward the mountain. Rifles cracked. Tomahawks flew. Indians yelled. But Hammond held on his course for about 50 rods when he stumbled and fell, but sprang up again. Stopping for a moment to listen, he found his pursuers on each side of him, or a little ahead, running like demons. He stepped behind a large pine tree to take a breath, when, reflecting that his pursuers, being already ahead of him, he would gain nothing by going on in that direction, he turned and ran for the river in such a course as to avoid the party around the fatal rock, and yet to keep an eye on them. He passed by without being seen, went down and plunged into the high grass in the swampy ground at the foot of the hill, where he remained concealed for about two hours, watching the movements and listening to the yells of his pursuers. He finally crawled out of his concealment, cautiously made his way to the river, and thence down to the fort. Let us go back to the battlefield. On the fatal left, we find only the body of John Caldwell, of Captain Whittlesey's company. He was killed by the first fire of the Indians. In fact, they fired but once, and dropping their guns, rushed in with spears and tomahawks. Not a living, breathing soul is found on the field. All who had not been able to fly, except Colonel Durant's, were put to death and scalped. The wounded were killed where they lay, or were dragged to the burning fort and thrown upon the fire, pierced and held onto the fire with spears. They plead in most piteous terms to be spared, but they appealed to the hearts of adamant that rejoiced in their sufferings and laughed at their merciful supplications. The body of Captain Ransom, who was a fleshy man, was lying near the fort. His thigh was split with a knife all around from the knees to the hips. Captain Bidlock was lying by his side, his head cut off. He had been held on a fire in a heap of old logs and brush and burned to death. All were shockingly mutilated. It was a terrible sight. The stench from the burning bodies polluted the atmosphere with its odor. Night came, but it did not put an end to the work of death. All through its dark shadows, the Indians and Tories, like beasts of prey, prowled along the line of flight, hunting out those who had concealed themselves, slaying them on the spot, and tearing off their scalps, or capturing and reserving them for torture. To those who were in the forts, and those who had escaped the pursuit of the murderous savages, that was a night of consternation, of alarm, and of terrible agony. The shrill whoop of the Indians, mingled with the yells and hootings of the Tories and British, as they gathered near, proclaimed a fate as horrible to the survivors as that of any who had fallen into their hands. All through the night was heard the voice of lamentation for the fate of husbands, fathers, sons, brothers, and friends who had fallen by the hands of the enemy, and weeping and wailing for tribulation, danger, and death that seemed to await them on the morrow. To the survivors, it was a night long to be remembered, never to be forgotten. The morning of July 4th dawned amid the deepest sorrow and the most gloomy forebodings. Whichever way the afflicted people turned their eyes, death stared them in the face. The victorious foe seemed but to have wet their appetite for blood by the carnival of the preceding day and night. They spread themselves everywhere throughout the valley, and their pathway was marked by the shrieks of falling victims, the conflagration of their dwellings, and the destruction of their teeming harvests. About eight o'clock in the morning, Major Butler dispatched a messenger with a flag to Forty Fort. Major Butler, the Ranger Tory leader, 
dispatched a messenger with a flag to Forty Fort, requesting Colonel Dennison to come up to headquarters and agree on terms of capitulation. He went, accompanied by Obadiah Gore, Esquire, and Dr. Lemuel Guston. A demand was made for the delivering up of all Continental troops as prisoners of war, specifically naming Colonel Z. Butler, Lieutenant J. Jenkins, and the remains of Hewitt's company. Dennison desired time to consult, which was given. It was determined that these parties should at once leave the valley, and the capitulation should be only for the inhabitants. Colonel Butler at once fled across the mountains to Lehigh, and Hewitt's company fled down the river. Terms were agreed upon on a renewal of negotiations in all respects favorable to the inhabitants, except that it provided, quote, that the property taken from the people called Tories up the river be made good, and they to remain in peaceable possession of their farms. This was the only provision against the settlers and in favor of the enemy, or any part of them. Nevertheless, says Colonel Dennison, the enemy, being powerful, proceeded, plundered, burned, and destroyed almost everything that was valuable, murdered several of the remaining inhabitants, and compelled most of the remainder to leave their settlements, nearly destitute of clothing, provisions, and the necessaries of life. End quote. William Gallup, an oath in the case of Van Horn versus Durant, says, We were not to be plundered, but they plundered us of everything. They kept us three or four days, then told us to go. 180 women and children, accompanied by only 13 men, went together. They suffered extremely, all on foot, barefoot, bareheaded, in great want of provisions. Two women were delivered in the woods. Those of the men who had been in the battle made their escape before the fort surrendered, as the enemy said they would kill all that had been in the battle. The savages burnt all our improvements, scarcely a house left that was valuable. About 200 men were then absent, serving in the Continental Army. The greater part of the men, women, and children had fled east and down the river on the night of the massacre. Crossing the river at Forty Fort, they plunged into the wilderness and made their way to the mountains. Many fled on the night of the 4th. The number of fugitives fleeing east from the valley was about 2,000. The savages, finding they had fled, pursued them. Many were slain by the pursuing savages in their flight. Some died of stress and fatigue, others of hunger and exposure, while many were lost who never found their way out. Hundreds were never seen again after they turned their backs on Wyoming. But what sufferings and torture they died from, the world will never know. On their way was a long and dreary swamp to be traversed by them, which on account of the number who fell and perished in its mire, and among its thorny brambles was called the Shades of Death. On the evening of the 5th, the advance party fell in with Captain Spaulding's company at Bear Swamp. On the morning of the 6th, Lieutenant Jenkins joined the company, and they continued their march toward Wyoming. When they arrived on the top of the mountains, within sight of the afflicted valley, they halted and sent out parties to protect the fugitives and drive back the pursuing savages. They remained here engaged in this work for two or three days when they fell into the rear of the fugitives, scattering themselves to the woods, picking up those who had fallen by the way, exhausted from hunger and fatigue, giving them food and encouraging 
and helping forward the women and children. But for the timely aid thus furnished, many, very many, would have perished, who passed through the wilderness in safety. The number slain in the battle and massacre has been variously stated. It may be put down at 300. Those who perished in the wilderness may be put down at 200, making a total of 500 in the battle, massacre, and flight. Major John Butler, in his report, says 227 scalps were taken at Wyoming. Many were shot in the river, and those scalps could not be obtained. And for some of those historians that claim that Joseph Brent was somehow never present during this or the other massacre-style hostilities, this letter for Colonel Guy Johnson to Lord George Germain, dated September 10, 1778, bears witness. Your Lordship will have learned before this can reach you of the successful incursions of the Indians and Loyalists from the northward. In conformity to the instructions I conveyed to my officers, they assembled to the forces early in May, and one division, under one of my deputies, Mr. Butler, proceeded with great success down the Susquehanna, destroying the posts and settlements at Wyoming, augmenting their numbers with many loyalists, and alarming all the country, whilst another division, under Mr. Brandt, the Indian chief, cut off 294 men near Schoharie and destroyed the adjacent settlements with several magazines, from whence the rebels had derived great resources, thereby affording encouragement and opportunity to many friends of the government to join them. These 294 scalps of men cut off by Mr. Butler and the chief, Brant, and their associates, and sold in the British market, were gathered on the following fields. Cobleskill, 22 scalps. West Branch of Susquehanna, 45 scalps. Wyoming, 227 scalps. Total, 294. It is said by some that Brant was not at Wyoming. The story is told by both sides that he was. So let's settle that argument here and now. If these be not the fields wherein were harvested and prepared for the British market, these 294 scalps of human victims, please tell me from what fields they were gathered. The number is sure to be correct, for the report comes from the purchaser, a high dignitary of the British crown, a wholesale dealer in scalps for which he paid 2,940 in British gold and silver. A few more may have been gathered and lost by the wayside, but this was the number taken to market. At $10 each, they were too valuable to be counted loosely. The number agrees with the stumps upon the ground in these localities. Historians favorable to the beleaguered Indians in the years following all those atrocities try to say that not a woman or child was slain by the enemy in the valley after the massacre of all the men. How many, if any, were slain by them in the woods and mountains, whither they pursued them, was never known. Apologist historians friendly to the Indians say there was no shutting up whole families in their houses, and then fire set to them, and the whole consumed together. No slaughter of whole families, men, women, and children, in that or any other way. The wickedness and devilishness of the savage horde needed not that extent of atrocity to make them execrated throughout the civilized world. Upon the reception of the horrible tidings from Wyoming, George Washington directed Colonel Thomas Hartley to form a rendezvous, gather troops, and move against the invaders on their own ground. At the same time, Colonel William Butler of the 4th Pennsylvania Regiment 
was ordered from Fort Stanwix to go down and form a junction with Colonel Hartley at Tioga and together operate against the enemy. Colonel Hartley went as far as Tioga, took some Indians prisoner, burnt Queen Esther's town and palace, and destroyed Tioga, but Colonel Butler did not appear to join him. He returned to Wyoming. On his way, he was attacked by a considerable body of Indians between Wyalusing and Laceyville on Indian Hill. Quite a sharp fight was had. The Indians were beaten and fled, leaving ten of their number dead on the field. Colonel Butler mistook his way. He went down the headwaters of the Delaware instead of the Susquehanna. Discovering his mistake, he then struck across to the Susquehanna, but too late to cooperate with Colonel Hartley. He, however, destroyed the Indian castles and villages in the neighborhood of Unadilla, up and down the river. There was no killing of Indians, just the burning of their villages in retaliation for their killing and massacre. This, however, was followed by the massacre of Cherry Valley on the 11th of November following. The whole country had now become aroused to the terrible state of affairs on the frontiers, and vigorous and ample means for subduing these inhuman monsters were demanded on all hands. Accordingly, an expedition against them was devised during the winter of 1778-1779, and set in motion in the following spring. This expedition was put in charge of Major General John Sullivan, who marched into the Indian country as far as the Genesee River, and we'll cover this expedition in a few minutes. Before we cover the attacks in the summer and fall of 1778 that led to the Cherry Valley Massacre in November, I'm going to give you the backgrounds of some of the major players that were involved in the Cherry Valley Massacre, beginning with John Alden, 1st Commander. If that name has a familiar ring to you, it's due probably to the fact that he was the great-grandson of the John Alden who came across on the Mayflower. Appointed Lieutenant Colonel of the Plymouth Militia Regiment, in 1775, Alden first saw action serving with the 25th Continental Regiment during the Siege of Boston. Following his promotion to Colonel in November 1776, Alden was assigned to the 7th Massachusetts Regiment stationed at the garrison of Cherry Valley, New York. Although commanding between 200 and 300 men, Alden's limited military experience and lack of knowledge regarding local Indian tactics and customs would prove to be a great disadvantage in early November of 1778. Alden made minimal preparations, a fatal error for many involved in or protected by his command. Another player in the Cherry Valley Massacre is Loyalist Captain John Butler, who organized and led Butler's Rangers, one of a number of elite Ranger-mounted strike forces that were used with deadly efficiency through the French-Indian and Revolutionary Wars such as the Queen's Rangers and Simcoe's Rangers. Butler's Rangers was a loyalist British provincial military unit. Most members of the regiment were loyalists from upstate New York. Among the Rangers was also a body of African-American former slaves. The total number of their presence in Butler's Rangers is unknown, with estimates ranging from two to more than a dozen. While some served in other loyalist units and as sappers in the Engineer Corps and Royal Artillery, Sir William Howe prohibited their enlistment in the British Army and ordered the disbandment of existing black regiments. The Rangers participated in the Wyoming Valley Massacre in July of 1778 and the Cherry Valley Massacre in November of 1778. The massacre of European settlers assisted by Iroquois forces under the command of Joseph Brandt. 
These actions earned the Rangers a reputation for ruthlessness and no-holds-barred warfare tactics. They fought principally in western New York and Pennsylvania, but ranged as far west as Ohio and Michigan and as far south as Virginia. Their winter quarters were constructed on the west bank of the Niagara River in what is now Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario. Joseph Brandt, who we discussed briefly in Part 1, was raised as a Mohawk near Johnson's Fort and taken in basically as a trustee of William Johnson, whose common-law wife, Molly, was Brandt's sister. He was given an excellent education and raised to be a warrior and chief, half English, all white, but raised by Indians, the perfect combination that the British needed for a Mohawk leader. Brandt was groomed almost from birth in the way that you would create a Frankenstein, the objective being to solidify English and Mohawk interests under the power of one man. Brant was sent to England to meet the king and queen and given all the tools he needed to succeed. The word Frankenstein is not used loosely, for after Brant began ordering attacks, the colonists soon came to call him Monster Brant. Most historical references I have seen are much kinder and simply call him a great king and leader. They also attempt to remove him from both major massacres just related, but survivors disagree. In 1775, Brant was appointed departmental secretary with the rank of captain for the new British superintendent's Mohawk warriors from Kanajahari. In April 1775, the American Revolution began with fighting breaking out in Massachusetts, and in May of 75, Brant traveled to a meeting at German Flats to discuss the crisis. While traveling to German Flats, Brandt felt firsthand the fear and hostility held by the whites of Tryon County, who hated him both for his tactics against Clock at German Flats and as a friend of the powerful Johnson family. Guy Johnson suggested that Brandt go with him to Canada, saying that both their lives were in danger. When Loyalists were threatened after the war broke out in April of 1775, Brandt moved to the province of Quebec, arriving in Montreal on July 17th. The governor of Quebec, General Guy Carleton, personally disliked Johnson, felt his plans for employing the Iroquois against the rebels to be inhumane, and treated Brant with barely-veiled contempt. Brant's wife Susanna and children went to Onequaga in south-central New York, a Tuscarora Iroquois village along the Susquehanna River, the site of present-day Windsor, New York. On November 11, 1775, Guy Johnson took Brent with him to London to solicit more support from the government. They hoped to persuade the Crown to address past Mohawk land grievances in exchange for their participation as allies in the impending war. Brent met George III during his trip to London and refused to kiss the king's hand, which was the custom in those days. That raised eyebrows for a moment as some men went for their swords but the queen diffused the situation by extending her hand, which he kissed. A few minutes later, not having enjoyed some of the negative attention that that scene had created, he grabbed a member of the king's entourage and held a long knife menacingly over his head, as if threatening to scalp him. Then, after galvanizing everyone in the room into a state of shock, he let the man go and smiled, as if all were just a joke. Nervous titters of laughter mixed with an uneasy silence, filled the room. Brant knew how important he was in bringing the Iroquois alliance, and he was showing them just how much he could get away with. 
His most important talks were with the colonial secretary, George Germain. Brant complained that the Iroquois had fought for the British in the Seven Years' War, taking heavy losses. Yet the British were allowing white settlers, like Clock, to take away land. The British government promised the Iroquois people land in Quebec if the Iroquois nations would fight on the British side in what was shaping up as an open rebellion by the American colonists. In London, Brant was treated as a celebrity and was interviewed for publication by James Boswell. While in public, he dressed in traditional Mohawk attire. He was accepted as a mason and received his ritual apron personally from King George. In April of 1778, Brant returned to Onequaga. He became one of the most active partisan leaders in the frontier war. He and his volunteers raided rebel settlements throughout the Mohawk Valley, stealing their cattle, burning their houses, and killing many, always taking scalps. Age and gender didn't matter. The British paid the same for every scalp, man, woman, or child. The British historian Michael Johnson called Brant the scourge of the American settlements of New York and Pennsylvania, being one of the most feared loyalist irregular commanders in the war. On May 30th, Brant led an attack on Cobleskill. At the Battle of Cobleskill, he ambushed an American force of 50 men consisting of Continental Army regulars and New York militiamen, killing 20 Americans and burning down the farms. In September, along with Captain William Caldwell, he led a mixed force of Indians and Loyalists in a raid on German flats. During that raid on German flats, Brant burned down almost the entire village, sparing only the church, the fort, and two houses belonging to Loyalist friends of his. Brant's fame as a guerrilla leader was such that the Americans credited him with being behind any attack by Loyalist Haudenosaunee, even when he was not. In the Battle of Wyoming in July, the Seneca slaughtered non-combatant civilians by the dozens. Some modern historians apologetically say that Brant wasn't in that battle. Accounts closer to the time say he was. This was where he earned the epithet of Monster Brant. In September of 1778, Brant's forces attacked Percifer Carr Form, where rebel patriotic scouts under Adam Helmer were located. Three of the scouts were killed. Helmer took off running to the northeast, through the hills, towards Schuyler Lake, and then north to Andrustown, near present-day Jordanville, New York, and where he warned his sister's family of the impending raid and obtained fresh footwear. He also warned settlers at Columbia and Petrie's Corners, most of whom then fled to safety at Fort Dayton. When Helmer arrived at the fort, severely torn up from his run, he told Colonel Peter Bellinger, the commander of the fort, that he had counted at least 200 of the attackers en route to the valley. The straight-line distance from Carr's farm to Fort Dayton is about 30 miles, and Helmer's winding and hilly route was far from straight. It was said that Helmer then slept for 36 hours straight. During his sleep, on September 17, 1778, the farms of the area were destroyed by Brant's raid. The total loss of property in the raid was reported as 63 houses, 59 barns full of grain, three grist mills, 235 horses, 229 horned cattle, 279 sheep, and 93 oxen. Only two men were reported killed in that attack, one by refusing to leave his home when he was warned. In October of 1778, Continental soldiers and local militia attacked Brant's home base at Onaquaga. 
while his volunteers were away on a raid. The soldiers burned the houses, killed the cattle, chopped down the apple trees, spoiled the growing corn crop, and according to one account, probably Brant's, killed some native children found in the cornfields. Unlikely, based on the fact that no Indian women and children had been reported killed up to that time. But mentioned here, in fairness, the American commander later described Onaquaga as the finest Indian town I ever saw. On both sides of the river, there were about 40 good houses, square logs, shingles, and stone chimneys, good floors, and glass windows. In November of 1778, Brant joined his Mohawk forces with those led by Walter Butler in the Cherry Valley Massacre. Brant disliked Butler, who he found to be arrogant and patronizing, and several times threatened to quit the expedition rather than work with Butler. Butler's forces were composed primarily of Seneca, angered by the rebel raids on Onaquaga, Unadilla, and Tioga, and by accusations of atrocities during the Battle of Wyoming. The force rampaged through Cherry Valley, a community in which Brant knew several people. He tried to restrain the attack, so the story goes, but as previously mentioned, more than 30 non-combatants were reported slain in the attack. Several of the dead at Cherry Valley were loyalists like Robert Wells, who was butchered in his house with his entire family. It should be noted that diaries belonging to British soldiers at the time explicitly refer to the regiment as being the perpetrators of the massacres. Paxton argued that it is very unlikely that Brant would have ordered Wells killed, who was a long-standing friend of his. Cherry Valley has been described as one of the most horrific frontier massacres of the war, of which there were many. A mixed force of loyalists, British soldiers, Seneca, and Mohawks descended upon Cherry Valley, whose defenders, despite warnings, were unprepared for the attack. During the raid, the Seneca in particular targeted non-combatants and reports state that 30 such individuals were slain, in addition to a number of armed defenders. Cherry Valley had a palisaded fort, constructed after Joseph Brant's raid on Koboskill, that surrounded the village meeting house. It was garrisoned by 300 soldiers of the 7th Massachusetts Regiment of the Continental Army, commanded by Colonel Ichabod Alden. This first-hand account by Captain Benjamin Warren, was found in the diary of Captain Benjamin Warren in the Jared Sparks collection of manuscripts at Harvard University in 1909. Captain Benjamin Warren, one of the great Americans of the Revolution, who, it is said, refused a generalship to fight in the ranks. His experiences on the battlefield of Saratoga, one of the 15 decisive battles of the world, were recorded from his own manuscript of the Journal of American History with a brief biography of Captain Warren. His experiences at the Massacre of Cherry Valley add a new chapter to his brave career. It was on the 10th of December in 1778 that the village of Cherry Valley in central New York was attacked and destroyed by 700 Tories and Indians. About 50 inhabitants were murdered without regard to age or sex. Many persons of refinement were among the victims. And it was such an atrocity as this with that of the Wyoming Massacre that thoroughly aroused the patriots against the Tories. The testimony of this eyewitness brings new and overwhelming evidence against the methods of warfare that have been the subject of discussion among historians ever since the American Revolution. The ancient manuscript is transcribed with the orthography of the times. About the 1st of November, General Hand, who was ordered to the command of the Northern Department, came to direct us to determine on the expediency of quartering the troops here for the winter. 
He called for a return of what ordnance, stores, ammunition, etc. I had in the garrison. Meanwhile, an express arrived from Fort Stanwix, informing that one of the Oneidas was at a council of war of the enemies, in which it was determined to visit Cherry Valley. The general had the regiment turned out and reviewed them. He paid us a high compliment in orders and in consequence of the express. He went down and ordered Colonel Clock to send immediately 200 men to reinforce us, which the general wrote was to have been here the 9th of November, and ordered up a large quantity of provision and ammunition stores, which, however, did not come to hand, nor any reinforcement of men and provision. And on Wednesday, the 11th, about 12 o'clock, the enemy to the number of 650 rushed upon us, surrounded headquarters and the fort immediately, and pushed vigorously for the fort. But our soldiers behaved with great spirit and alertness, defended the fort, and repulsed them after three hours and a half smart engagement. Colonel Alden, in endeavoring to reach the fort, was killed. Colonel Stacy, made prisoner together with Lieutenant Holden, Ensign Garrett, the surgeon's mate, and a sergeant, about 12 or 14 of the regiment, 12 of the regiment besides the colonel, killed and two wounded. November 12th, no reinforcements till about nine or 10 o'clock. The Indians came on again and gave a shout for rushing on but our cannon played brisk. They soon gave way. They then went round the settlement, burnt all the buildings, mostly the first day, and collected all the stock and drove the most of it off. Killed or captured all the inhabitants. A few that hid in the woods accepted who have since got into the fort. November 13th. In the afternoon and morning of the 13th, we sent out parties after the enemy withdrew. Brought in the dead. Such a shocking sight my eyes never beheld before of savage and brutal barbarity. To see the husband mourning over his dead wife with four dead children lying by her side, mangled, scalped, and some their heads, some their legs and arms cut off, some torn the flesh off their bones by their dogs, 12 of one family killed, and four of them burnt in his house. Saturday the 14th. The enemy seemed to be gone. We set out to collect what was left of cattle or anything, found more dead, and buried them. Sunday the 15th. This day some provision arrived, being the first supply after the first attack. We had not a pound for man and garrison for four or five days, but a trifle of meat. In the afternoon a scout we thought had been taken by them, a sergeant and eight men, arrived in safe. By some they took prisoners they let go again, informed they had a number wounded, and we saw a number of them fall, so that we have reason to think we killed more of them than they killed of our regiment, though they butchered about forty women and children that have been found. It came on to storm before the engagement began, first with rain, but for this day past it has been a thick snowstorm. Alden and his command staff were alerted by November 8th through Oneida spies that the butler Brant force was moving against Cherry Valley. However, he failed to take the elementary precautions, continuing to occupy a headquarters, the house of a settler named Wells, some 400 yards from the fort. Butler's force arrived near Cherry Valley late on November 10th and established a cold camp to avoid detection. Reconnaissance of the town identified the weaknesses of Alden's arrangements, and the raiders decided to send one force against Alden's headquarters and another against the fort. The attack began early in the morning on November 11th, some over-eager Indians spoiled the surprise by firing on settlers cutting wood nearby. One of them escaped 
raising the alarm. Little Beer led some of the Senecas to surround the Wells' house while the main body surrounded the fort. The attackers killed at least 16 officers and troops of the quarter's guards, including Alden, who was cut down while he was running from the Wells' house to the fort. Most accounts say Alden was within reach of the gates, only to stop and try and shoot his pursuer, who may have been Joseph Brandt. His wet pistol repeatedly misfired, and he was killed by a thrown tomahawk hitting him in the forehead. Lieutenant Colonel William Stacy, second in command, also quartered at the Wells' house, was taken prisoner. Stacy's son Benjamin and cousin Rufus Stacy ran through a hail of bullets to reach the fort from the house. Stacy's brother-in-law Gideon Day was killed. Those attacking the Wells' house eventually gained entry, leading to hand-to-hand combat inside. After killing most of the soldiers stationed there, the Senecas, with the help of Joseph Brandt, slaughtered the entire Wells household, twelve in all. The raiders' attack on the fort was unsuccessful. Lacking heavy weapons, they were unable to make any significant impressions on its stockade walls. The fort was then guarded by the Loyalists while the Indians rampaged through the rest of the settlement. Not a single house was left standing and the Senecas, seeking revenge, were reported to have slaughtered anyone they encountered. One of Brant's historian apologists reported that Brant in particular was dismayed to learn that a number of families who were well known to him, and whom he had counted as friends, had borne the brunt of the Seneca rampage, including the Wells, Campbell, Dunlop, and Clyde families. Lieutenant William McKendry, a quartermaster in Colonel Alden's regiment, described the attack in his journal. Immediately came on 442 Indians from the Five Nations, 200 Tories under the command of one Colonel Butler and Captain Brant, attacked headquarters, killed Colonel Alden, took Colonel Stacy prisoner, attacked Fort Alden, after three hours retreated without success of taking the fort. McKendry identified the fatalities of the massacre as Colonel Alden, 13 other soldiers, and 30 civilian inhabitants. Most of the slain soldiers and civilians had been at the Wells' house. Accounts surrounding the capture of Lieutenant Colonel Stacy report that he was about to be killed, but Brant intervened. Brant saved the life of Lieutenant Colonel Stacy, who was made prisoner when Colonel Alden was killed. It is said Stacy was a Freemason, and as such made an appeal to Brant, and was spared. The next morning, Butler sent Brant and some rangers back to the village to complete its destruction. The raiders took 70 captives, most of them women and children. About 40 of these Butler managed to have released, but the rest were distributed among their captors' villages until they were exchanged. Lieutenant Colonel Stacy was taken to Fort Niagara as a prisoner of the British. A Mohawk chief, in justifying the action at Cherry Valley, wrote to an American officer that, You burned our houses, which makes us and our brothers, the Seneca Indians, angry so that we destroyed men, women, and children at Cherry Valley. The Seneca declared they would no more be falsely accused or fight the enemy twice, the latter being an indication that they would refuse quarter in the future. Butler reported that, Notwithstanding my utmost precaution and endeavors to save the women and children, I could not prevent some of them falling unhappy victims to the fury of the savages, but also that he spent most of his time guarding the fort during the raid. 
Quebec's Governor Frederick Haldeman was so upset at Butler's inability to control his forces that he refused to see him, writing, Such indiscriminate vengeance, taken even upon the treacherous and cruel enemy they are engaged against, is useless and disreputable to themselves, as it is contrary to the dispositions and maxims of the king whose cause they are fighting. Butler, like Brandt, continued to insist in later writings that he was not at fault for the events of the day, despite dozens of witness accounts to the contrary. They knew back then that if you deny something often enough, sooner or later, people will begin to believe it. The violence of the frontier warfare added to the rebel American hatred of the Iroquois and soured relations for the next 100 years. As one historian put it, in an attempt to equate the burning of villages with the scalping of women and children. While the colonists called the Indian killings massacres, they considered their own forces widespread destruction of Indian villages simply as part of the partisan war. But the Iroquois equally grieved for their losses. They would grieve more in the years to come as their alignment with the British and Tories and their subsequent loss of the war would break the back of their tribes and extinguish their hold on land in America until two centuries later, when they could at least claim casino rights. Butler did not survive the war, but Brant did. Long after the war, hostility to Brant remained high in the Mohawk Valley. In 1797, the governor of New York provided an armed bodyguard for Brant's travels through the state because of threats against him. I keep reading in my research how it is assumed by some that the colonists killed innocent Iroquois women and children in Sullivan's campaign but I can't locate any specific information that details that. They burned homes and crops and killed combatants, but no non-combatants that I could find other than a random report of two native children killed at Onanqui. The same historians that say that the colonial militia killed innocents have argued that Brandt had been a force for restraint during the campaign in the Mohawk Valley. They have discovered occasions when he displayed compassion, especially towards women children, and non-combatants. But author and historian Alan W. Eckert asserts that Brandt pursued and killed Alden as the colonel fled to the Continental Stockade during the Cherry Valley attack. Lieutenant Colonel William Stacy of the Continental Army was the highest-ranking officer captured by Brandt during the Cherry Valley Massacre. Several contemporary accounts tell the Iroquois stripping Stacy and tying him to a stake in preparation for what was ritual torture and execution of enemy warriors by Iroquois custom. But Brant intervened and spared him. Some accounts, as we just related, say that Stacy was a Freemason and appealed to Brant on that basis, gaining his intervention for a fellow Mason. Again, Alan W. Eckert, an historian and novelist, speculates that the Stacy incident is much more romance than fact. Over the course of a year, Brant and his loyalist forces had reduced much of New York and Pennsylvania to ruins, causing thousands of farmers to flee one of the most productive agricultural regions on the eastern seaboard. As Brant's activities were depriving the Continental Army of food, General George Washington ordered General John Sullivan in June of 1779 to invade Kanienka and destroy all of the Haudenosaunee villages. In early July 1779, the British learned of plans for a major American expedition into Iroquois Seneca country. To disrupt the Americans' plans, John Butler sent Brant and his volunteers on a quest for provisions and to gather intelligence in the upper Delaware River Valley near Minisink, 
New York. After stopping in Onequaga, Brandt attacked and defeated American militia at the Battle of Minisink on July 22, 1779. Brandt's raid failed to disrupt the Continental Army's plans, however. In the Sullivan Expedition, the Continental Army sent a large force deep into Iroquois territory to attack the warriors and, as importantly, destroy their villages, crops, and food stores. Gnadenhutten Massacre, also known as the Moravian Massacre, was the killing of 96 Christian Lenape Delaware Indians by colonial white American militia from Pennsylvania on March 8, 1782 at the Moravian Missionary Village of Gnadenhutten, Ohio during the American Revolutionary War. The site of the village has been preserved. A reconstructed mission house and Cooper's house were built there and a monument to the dead was erected and dedicated a century later. The burial mound is marked and has been maintained on the site. The village site has been listed on the National Register of Historic Places. During the American Revolution, the Muncie and Unami-speaking Lenai Lenape, also called the Delaware, bands of the Ohio country were deeply divided over which side, if any, to take in the conflict. The Muncie were generally northern bands from around the Hudson River and Upper Delaware River originally. The Unami were from the southern reaches of the Delaware. Years earlier, many Lenape had migrated west to Ohio from their territory on the mid-Atlantic coast to try to escape colonial encroachment, as well as pressure from Iroquois tribes from the north based around the Great Lakes and western New York. They resettled in present-day Ohio with bands in several villages around their main village of Koshokton. These villages were named Schoenbrunn, Gnadenhutten, and Salem, and located on what was then called the Muskingum River. Modern geography places Koshokton on the Muskingum River and the three smaller villages on the Tuscaroas River. By the time of the Revolutionary War, the Lenape villages lay between the opposing interests which had western frontier strongholds on either side the rebel American colonists' military outpost at Fort Pitt, which was Pittsburgh, and the British with Indian allies around Fort Detroit, Michigan. Some Lenape decided to take up arms against the American colonists and move to the northwest, closer to Fort Detroit, where they settled on the Scioto and Sandusky Rivers. Those Lenape, sympathetic to the United States, remained at Koshokton, and leaders, including White Eyes, signed the treaty at Fort Pitt in 1778 with the Americans. Through this treaty, White Eyes intended to secure the Ohio country as a state to be inhabited exclusively by Native Americans as part of the new United States. A third group of Lenape, many of them converted Christian Muncie and Unami, lived in several mission villages in Ohio, led by David Zeisberger and other Moravian Christian missionaries. From the Mid-Atlantic area, they spoke the Muncie and Unami dialects of Delaware, an Algonquin language. White Eyes, a Lenape chief and speaker of the Delaware Head Council, negotiated the treaty. When he died in 1778, reportedly of smallpox, the treaty had not yet been ratified by Congress. United States officials never pursued it, and the Native American state was dropped. Years later, George Morgan, a colonial diplomat to the Lenape and Shawnee during the American Revolution, wrote to Congress that White Eyes had been murdered by American militia in Michigan. Many Lenape at Coshocton eventually joined the war against the Americans, in part because of American raids, even against their friendly bands. In response, Colonel Daniel Broadhead 
led an expedition out of Fort Pitt and on the 19th of April, 1781, destroyed Coshocton. Surviving residents fled to the north. Colonel Broadhead convinced the militia to leave the Lenape at the Moravian Mission villages unmolested, since they were peaceful and neutral. Broadhead's having to restrain the militia from attacking the Moravian villages was a reflection of the brutal nature of frontier warfare. Violence had escalated on both sides. Relations between regular Continental Army officers from the east, such as Broadhead, and Western militia were frequently strained. The tensions were worsened by the American government's policy of recruiting some Indian tribes as allies in the war. Western militiamen, many of whom had lost friends and family in Indian raids against settlers' encroachment, blamed all Indians for the acts of some and did not distinguish between friendly, happy, and hostile tribes or bands. In September of 1781, British Allied Indians, primarily Wyandotte and Lenape, forced the Christian Indians and missionaries from the Moravian villages. They took them northwest toward Lake Arieto to a new village called Captive Town on the Sandusky River. The British took the missionaries David Zeisberger and John Heckewelder under guard back to Detroit, where they tried the two men on charges of treason. The British suspected them of providing military intelligence to the American garrison at Fort Pitt, but the missionaries were acquitted. The Indians at Captive Town were going hungry because of insufficient rations. In February of 1782, more than 100 returned to their old Moravian villages to harvest the crops and collect stored food that they had been forced to leave behind. The frontier war was still raging. In early March 1782, the Lenape were surprised by a raiding party of 160 Pennsylvania militia led by Lieutenant Colonel David Williamson. The American militia rounded up the Christian Lenape and accused them of taking part in raids into Pennsylvania. Although the Lenape denied the charges, the militia held a council and voted to kill them. Refusing to take part, some militiamen left the area. One of those who opposed the killing of the Moravian Lenape was Obadiah Holmes, Jr., he wrote, One Nathan Rollins and brother, who had had a father and uncle killed, took the lead in murdering the Indians. And Nathan Rollins had tomahawked 19 of the poor Moravians. And after it was over, they sat down and cried and said it was no satisfaction for the loss of his father and uncle after all. After the Lenape were told of the American militia's vote, they requested time to prepare for death and spent the night praying and singing hymns. They were held in two buildings, one for men and one for women and children. The next morning on 8th of March, the militia brought the Lenape to one of two killing houses, one for men and the other for women and children. The American militia tied the Indians, stunned them with mallet blows to the head, and killed them with fatal scalping cuts. In all, the militia murdered and scalped 28 men, 29 women, and 39 children. Two Indian boys, one of whom had been scalped, survived to tell the massacre. They piled the bodies in the mission buildings and burned the village down. They also burned the other abandoned Moravian villages. The American militia looted the villages prior to their burning. The plunder, which needed 80 horses to carry, included everything which the people had held, furs for trade, pewter, tea sets, and clothing. A few years later, missionary Heckewelder collected the remains of the Lenape and buried them in a mound on the southern side of the village. Although many settlers were outraged by the Nodden Hood massacre, frontier residents 
embittered by the ferocious warfare, generally supported the militia's actions. Despite talk of bringing the murderers to justice, no criminal charges were filed and the conflict continued unabated. The Lenape allies of the British sought revenge for the Naden Houghton massacre. When General George Washington heard about the massacre, he ordered American soldiers to avoid being captured alive. He feared what the hostile Lenape would do to captured Americans. Washington's close friend William Crawford was captured while leading an expedition against the Lenape at Upper Sandusky, Ohio. Crawford had not been at Naden but was killed in retaliation. Captain Charles Bilderback had participated in the Naden massacre and was a survivor of the June 1782 Crawford expedition. Seven years later, in June 1789, he was captured by hostile Lenape in Ohio, who killed him. David Williamson, the officer who led the Naden massacre, was also a survivor of the Crawford expedition. In 1814, decades after the war, he died in poverty. The leader of the Home Guard at the time was Captain John Hay, who on November 24th led an attack on the Delaware. In 1810, Tecumseh reminded future President William Henry Harrison, You recall the time when the Jesus Indians of the Delawares lived near the Americans and had confidence in their promises of friendship and thought they were secure? Yet the Americans murdered all the men, women, and children, even as they prayed to Jesus. In the early 1900s, President Theodore Roosevelt called the atrocity a stain on the frontier character that time cannot wash away. So both stories tell us there was scalping a massacre committed, at least by American militia, out of Fort Pitt. In June of 1782, Brant and his Indians went to Fort Oswego, where they helped rebuild the fort. In July of 1782, he and 460 Iroquois raided Forts Herkimer and Dayton, but they didn't cause much serious damage. By 1782, there wasn't much left to destroy in New York, and during the raid, Brant's forces killed nine men and captured some cattle. Sometime during the raid, he received a letter from Governor Haldeman announcing peace negotiations, recalling the war party, and ordering a cessation of hostilities. Brant denounced the British no-offensive-war policy as a betrayal of the Iroquois and urged the Indians to continue the war, but they were unable to do so without British supplies. Other events in the New World and Europe, as well as changes in the British government, had brought reconsideration of British national interest on the American continent. The two governments recognized their priority to get Britain out of its four interconnected wars, and time might be short. Through a long and involved process between March and the end of November 1782, the preliminary peace treaty between Great Britain and America would be made. It would become public knowledge following its approval by the Congress of the Confederation on April 15, 1783. In May of 1783, a bitter Brant, when he learned about the Treaty of Paris, wrote, England had sold the Indians to Congress. Much to Brant's dismay, not only did the Treaty of Paris fail to mention the Haudenosaunee, but the British negotiators took the viewpoint that the Iroquois would have to negotiate their own peace treaty with the Americans, who Brant knew were in a vengeful mood against him. Nearly another year would pass before the other foreign parties to the conflict signed treaties on September 3, 1783, with that being ratified by Congress on January 14, 1784, and formally ending the American Revolutionary War. Many of us tend to think the war ended with the surrender of Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown 
1781. But as this story tells you, the war raged on the frontier for two years after that. General Greene was still besieging the British in Charleston in 1782, and in the northwest frontier of Ohio, George Rogers Clark had conquered the territory, but was unable to hold it. The British still held Detroit. British regulars, however, began to head back to England to fight other wars. Indians of the Ohio River Valley and Mohawk Valley were getting less and less support from their British allies. The general population of America, every man, woman, and child, had heard of the type of hostilities that had been carried out against frontier families, and there was a fear and loathing for the American Indian was only compounded as civilization moved westward in the next century. Manifest destiny had begun. The historians are left to pick up the pieces and make their judgments as to what happened, why it happened, and what was learned. A monument was dedicated at Cherry Valley on August 15, 1878, at the centennial anniversary of the massacre. Former New York Governor Horatio Seymour delivered a dedication address at the monument to an audience of about 10,000 persons, saying, I am here today not only to show reverence for those dead patriots, but to offer my respects and heartfelt gratitude to the living descendants of those illustrious persons of the early settlements who have erected this memorial stone. It is to be hoped that their example will be copied, that the report of these commemorative exercises will move others to like acts of pious duty. Let every son of this soil uncover reverently as this monument is unveiled and do reverence to their sturdy patriotism, made strong by their great faith, their trials, and their suffering, and show that the blood of innocent children, of wives, of sisters, of mothers, and of brave men was not shed in vain. Let us show the world that 100 years have added to the value of that noble sacrifice. Thus we shall leave this sacred spot better men and women, with a higher and nobler purpose of life than that which animated us when we entered this domain of the dead. Years after the massacre, Benjamin Stacy's home village of New Salem, Massachusetts, celebrated the annual Old Home Day holiday with a Benjamin Stacy foot race, honoring his escape at Cherry Valley. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I think by now, those of you who have stayed with this story are experts on the Indian wars that took place during the American Revolution. As for me, I can't point a finger of blame at European expansion, as the history of mankind has been one of constant movement. Also, man himself is aggressive by his very nature. The less civilized, the more brutal in his aggressiveness. All throughout history, civilized cultures have clashed with uncivilized cultures. As war became more mechanized, many more men died. It is a sad epitaph to life on earth that it can't be lived in peace. Maybe someday we'll get there, but looking around, I can't see that it will happen anytime soon. We ask that you give our other 1001 shows a try. 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Radio Days, and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We've provided a full list of links in the show notes for you. We have also established a page at patreon.com where our listeners can go to support our show with monthly donations of any size or single donations of any size at patriot.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's a big help, and we appreciate it. Thank you. We also appreciate reviews from Apple and Stitcher.com. Those reviews help our show to be discovered, and we appreciate them. 
Many more stories to come as we uncover history. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We'll be back Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until then, stay safe.